This is Lynn Joyrich. I'm a professor of modern culture and media at Brown University. And I would like to welcome everybody to our concluding episode of Talking Television in a Pandemic, um, where we have had, I believe, some really fantastic conversations across the last few weeks on the topics of epistemology, ideology, phenomenology, technology, pedagogy, and global geographies. And I really want to thank my co-organizers in arranging those who are also with me here today, and that would be the brilliant Hunter Hargraves, who's Associate Professor of Cinema and Television Arts at California State University, Fullerton, and the equally brilliant Brandy Monk-Payton, Assistant Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University. So the three of us have taken great pleasure, and I feel like learned so much from these conversations that we've had about talking television in a pandemic. So to start off this concluding episode, one thing that we wanted to talk about was just the progression of this very series. So we started this series, Talking Television in a Pandemic, obviously when the COVID-19 pandemic was exploding. um, And we were thinking about the fact that so many people were home watching TV so much, either for information about the pandemic or to sort of distract themselves from the pandemic or in the age of social distancing to give themselves company, comfort, et cetera. So we started with that, but then after we, we recorded the first couple episodes with, with those kinds of issues in mind, and then the horrific murder of George Floyd hit the media, along with news about so many other just absolutely, again, horrific stories about police brutality, particularly against African-Americans. And so then, you know, there was the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, the resurgence of that, and so many other movements and and issues around um, racial justice, liberation, et cetera. And we started thinking in the series about the way that that intersected with the pandemic, the way that, in a sense, racism itself can be seen as a kind of spreadable disease. Um, obviously, the analogy is not perfect, but the, the intersections and the way that COVID-19 really highlighted racial disparities and hierarchies in our culture and vice versa, the way that questions of racial justice always involve also questions of public health. So we then sort of shifted to try to think about these intersecting pandemics and the way that these issues all connect. And so the conversation sort of progressed. So I guess one place for us to start, and again, I welcome uh, my co-organizers, Brandon Hunter, into the conversation, is thinking about the way in which we shifted the conversation and the way in which that itself sort of reflects the temporality, both of television and of podcast, trying to kind of stay up to date to the present moment and, and moving with what's happening in the world. So wondering what you, my, my brilliant co-organizers, think about this. Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of question of the liveness, right, of the the sort of global public health crisis and the crisis of anti-Black violence merging really made me think and rethink my assumptions about my 
place in the world, honestly, and sort of how I was both encountering television, but also drawn to uh, not watch television, right? To sort of be on the streets protesting, uh, to create some kind of material footprint, if you will, that wasn't just sort of watching a screen, right? Uh, And sort of feeling helpless. Uh, And so, yeah, I I think that I I really kind of struggle with that personally. And then through the podcast, just sort of seeing how our conversations shifted, the tones of the conversations, uh, thinking about how the, the sort of question of the privilege of watching TV, perhaps during the global health pandemic, transitioned into a conversation about TV's function in terms of questions of equality and and justice. Uh, And so that was a really interesting um, shift for me. I would add to that that there's a way in which television really revealed itself once we started to see more unrest uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, that, that maybe television had a very different role in how it it functions as a form of comfort or as a form of information. I, like Brandy, ended up spending most of June not watching as much television, in part because, you know, being in the streets means that you're away from a television screen, even if you are sort of creating new content for future screens in that very sort of being. But what really struck me was sort of the difference between how television responded to COVID and how television responded to this sort of new iteration of Black Lives Matter, right? We mentioned, I think, in the the opening epi- or the the opening episode on epistemology, there was a conversation about commercials in COVID, right? And and that, and that sort of trickled into the first couple episodes on ideology and phenomenology as well. How there would be this kind of uh, you know weird response from all of these corporate brands on like how to have some kind of evocation to an imagined community of the nation, like getting through this together, that when after the murder of George Floyd seemed to be kind of absent or seemed to sort of ring hollow, that there weren't as many sort of corporate gestures that I think really satisfied a lot of its progressive and certainly like of color audience. And I think we're still kind of seeing some of the after effects of that, like a lot of attention that was sort of paid to the pandemic just didn't translate as much or the, the kinds of sort of scale, the kinds of aesthetics, they just didn't translate when you started to talk about racial justice. So that to me was very sort of interesting. Yeah, no, that's fascinating about what continued and what changed across these. It also to me ties to a question that I have about, you know, our, our entire podcast, right, of course, is talking television in a pandemic or in intersecting pandemics. And one question is even, what is talking television, right? Television itself is based so much on talk. Although, as you said, Hunter, the way that it talked about COVID is maybe different than the way that it talked about Black Lives Matter, as well as the way it visualized them. But so much about TV is about talking. And then, of course, people themselves talk about television I think with one another as common conversation. So here we are as sort of TV critics talking television. I think in some ways that we're both similar to just the way everybody talks about television, but we also tried to bring in other perspectives, you know, that we tried to kind of, again, bring in critique and analysis to talk about television. I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts about that, about the way our talking television relates to television's own talking or viewer talking or the way we talk with our students? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think in terms of, of television's own talk, what, what Hunter just brought up, differential responses to the COVID versus anti-Black racism, you know, there's that, that saying, all talk and no action, right? Uh, and so there's a kind of interesting way in which television uh, through, you know, creators, but also audiences were really trying to call for television to account, right? And to actually sort of materially change their practices within the industry. Uh, now, sometimes that that sort of overreached and it was, it was weird, right? So we can think about uh, Hulu taking down a Golden Girls episode or sort of other kinds of excising of particular content, these sort of responses uh, on social media pages. And so they're trying to approximate a particular kind of action, uh, whether that action is the action justice workers want, right, is, is a very different story in terms of representation. Uh, so I always think that's kind of fascinating, right? Uh, when, you know, what are the terms and conditions by which TV does act? And are those actions effective? That's a really great point, Brandy. And I would also want to highlight your own work in drawing our attention to and demystifying many of these kinds of televisual contradictions. Um, with respect to representing Blackness in the piece that came out a couple weeks ago in Public Books. So everyone who's listening, please go to Public Books and read Brandy's piece on that. Um, So actions, yeah, these kinds of hollow actions like having Viacom cable channels give us eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence while then resuming normal programming. Or the example that I keep returning to is uh, Tina Fey, removing four episodes of 30 Rock for its sort of use of blackface. Um, as someone who has been watching old episodes of 30 Rock for the past few months, like under quarantine, what's been really sort of interesting is like, okay, like Tina Fey, like you don't want these episodes of blackface on streaming platforms, but the rest of the series, which traffics a lot in racial stereotypes and mobilizes those stereotypes in pursuit of this so-called sort of ironic 2000, late 2000s cringe comedy affect is really fascinating to me because it sort of says that, oh, well, the visual representation of blackface and it's maybe like long legacy to minstrel shows is where we draw the line. But other kinds of constructions like the character of, you know, Tracy Jordan, Tracy Morgan, right? Like, and the play on that are somehow still sort of socially acceptable. So I think this is a lot, like a lot of this, these kinds of actions actually speak to television's own rehistoricizing of itself or trying to determine sort of like its own sort of historiography in that respect. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. And there is this way in which, you know, as we said, uh, television itself is so much, you know, talking, but there's also the stuff that television doesn't talk about. So the way it tries to monitor what it talks and what it doesn't talk about, what it shows, what it doesn't show, what it keeps in its canon and what it doesn't is so interesting. And, you know, you mentioned the 30 Rock. I mean, another great example of that, that again, I think Brandy mentioned was the Golden Girls episode that they took down that was actually a critique of racism, but involved, you know, this moment of, of some of the characters coming in with, with mud masks on their face that they were afraid, you know, would read as blackface, even though, again, the episode is itself criticizing that. So I think it showed, it was a, one great article about this that I'll also give a shout out to is a recent article by Rebecca Wanzo about exactly this. 
that again, the issue of how TV deals with these with these problems goes so much beyond just what the content is, and can you just either put something on the air or take something off the air as if that itself is an action as opposed to really thinking fully about how are things represented, who's representing it, who gets to speak, who's in the writer's room, how do we watch it, what are the other discourses that it intersects with, so that you have to think about all those things to think about how it's, again, dealing with both the pandemic and dealing with these issues of of racial violence. And I think... Lynn, that we, when we teach television studies, we are very insistent upon all of these dynamics, right? We tell our students, you have to look at context. You have to look at the context of production. You have to look at the context of reception. And that both are sort of equally important for situating because television is a medium of the present. So how do we unpack that sort of notion of the present? How do we understand those kinds of social, cultural, political contexts? And how some of the ways in which some of these actions, right? Just asking a streaming service to pull in, pull episodes like really robs audiences of their ability to be critical spectators. When Mad Men comes to Amazon's IMDb TV, it's going to take its blackface episode in which uh, John Slattery plays Roger Sterling, who who appears in blackface in one episode but with a title card that explains that while we understand that this might be a triggering image for many viewers, this is a show about historical context and we feel very strongly that, you know, that its inclusion helps us reinforce the critique of blackface, right? Or reinforces the critique of 1960s racial politics that the show's off and on engages with. Uh, another example being HBO Max and Gone with the Wind, where they initially pulled it, but then said, okay, well, we can let this on, but we're going to have um, Jacqueline Stewart, the fantastic film scholar, uh, give an introduction. Again, situating it within its historical context and allowing us to be critical spectators. Um, I have a question for both of you, which is what were some of your favorite memories or sort of the comments and dialogues within the podcast series that really sort of stuck with you as we move forward? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, it was really great to uh, hear people's own television viewing habits uh, across these past few months. That kind of turned towards comfort, right? Comfort television that uh, many of our participants spoke about, you know, whether they were watching old domestic sitcoms uh, to, you know, other shows that were more politically engaged. I myself have have been moving back and forth between, you know, shows that are um, Uh, very, you know, quote unquote relevant, but also watching The Babysitter's Club on Netflix, right? The reboot. Um, And so I think that there's a a sort of interesting way in which we as as scholars have also been consuming TV as a way to quell anxiety. uh, And whether we're by ourselves or whether we have children in the house, you know, in the home, uh, the kind of turn towards uh, or interest in children's media, I think, is something uh, that sort of really came up uh, both in the ideology episode and uh, in our global geographies episode. Uh, and I think that's really uh, a kind of fascinating space for experimentation uh, in the future. In addition to, you know, something like children's media uh, being sort of brought to the forefront, I wonder about sports. Misha brought up sports at the on the Global Geographies uh, podcast, but athletes both being as agents of social change. But I, I find that 
so much of our television viewership or even how the U.S. understands itself as a country is through the watching of sports. Uh, and so I wonder about what that's going to look like in the future. What other forms of sociality are going to have to um, emerge uh, with a potential absence of, of sports? I think that's I think the question of sports is a, is a big one for many of, of us, not personally, but also, you know, certainly many of our students. And I guess something that I've been interested in with, with respect to that is when we teach the Super Bowl, we teach it for the commercials, and we also teach it for how it yokes together and, and speaks to the sort of imagined national community, right, through its various formal um, and often pre-recorded segments. But what's really struck me about the pandemic is sort of how in both of these pandemics, many people who maybe previously held more of an attachment to the nation state, like are now starting to realize that the ideology, the framework of the nation state might not be the most helpful form of organization for their social life. And so we see, you know, based on how their local government is responding to coronavirus, based on how their local and municipal governments, like what their histories are with police brutality and sort of state anti-Blackness, right? So I think we're already starting to see some of those identifications weaken. And I'm not sure if sports will, you know, without having the sports in the same way for the next, you know, season, whether or not that might only amplify those kinds of regional, local sort of exacerbations, or, you know, or sort of, the, uh, yeah, how it might how it might amplify those sorts of regional or local ties and sort of tensions with the national, especially as we move into a presidential election. Yeah. And I would just say like these really crucial issues that are so much brought to the fore and highlighted by the pandemic with different countries' responses to it and by liberation movements, movements for racial justice, that the our bonus episode on global geographies was so important. Um, and I really thank our, our producer, Chris Becker, for moderating that and conceptualizing that, because I think that thinking about, you know, both the, the conjunctions and disjunctions across different nations, regions, localities, globalities was really critical. Yeah, doing this for me has been so rewarding. It's just been so wonderful to have these conversations with these really amazing people. I, you know, as somebody who in some ways is starved for for company and conversations, doing the series itself was really wonderful to talk to people. Um, and I often felt like the episodes, you know, we could have gone on and on. If for me, it was it was so interesting, but. You know, it's also interesting how they all have their own sort of specificity and flow and different affects in each one that, of course, not surprisingly, was very much correlated to what was going on in the world at that time. So that our own podcast had a kind of flow. Each episode itself kind of mimicked television flow, but also the way that TV flow ties to the flow of everyday life. So I feel like some of the episodes were more lighthearted with people joking with each other. Others were people, you know, really commiserating with each other or expressing their outrage, their rage at what was happening in the world. So so I think that that was really interesting to see that whole range of responses, as well as, of course, the range of issues brought up, intellectual issues brought up, pedagogical issues brought up, and the range of shows. So there were some programs that I felt like were sort of repeatedly referenced because I think they were resonant for good or bad 
over the course of the series, you know, people, of course, would talk about things like news coverage, but also Tiger King came up a lot. Watchmen came up a lot. Very, you know, but also people going back to older series, things that people watch, comfort series. But then it was also interesting to hear, you know, things that are not necessarily talked about that much, like, for example, independent alternative TV, like the wonderful stuff that AJ Christian does through open television, um, talking about user made video. So just the sort of um, both continuities and differences between the different episodes was was very interesting to me. What about you, Hunter? I've been thinking a lot about a back and forth between um, Lori Ouellette and Herman Gray in the epistemology episode in which Laurie is talking about the, at the time, the sort of the daily briefings of the coronavirus task force and of Trump's sort of commandeering of the airwaves. And she says, you know, and I hope I'm paraphrasing correctly, Laurie, if you're listening, um, she says, you know, we are, you know, we teach our students to really embrace these kinds of more democratized populist forms of like mass entertainment, right? To say that like there is inherent value in studying, you know, going back to cultural studies and, uh, you know, the romance novel, the soap opera, reality television, all of this. And now it feels like kind of some of the work we need to do is to point at some of these quote unquote lowbrow genres and be like, wait a second, no, let's don't be duped. Like, like just, you know, like recognize it also for what it is as a certain form of false consciousness. And Herman and, and Laurie and Herman Gray had this sort of back and forth about what it means as scholars who had been doing that work for many years to now kind of reassess and be like, oh shit, we live in an environment in which Trump is sort of taking advantage of you know, our sympathetic and generous engagement with the quote unquote lowbrow. And it's gotten me thinking a lot about too, about how do we position ideology critique in the classroom? And I think many of us might be wrestling with similar kinds of anxieties as we try to retool classes for the fall semester um, and think about sort of exactly how to not only teach online, but also teach during a consequential presidential election, and one in which it really does seem like we've lost, in many respects, control over television. I think that that's a really great point, Hunter. And I would add, in general, how do we position critique, television critique, in the public sphere entirely today, not only in our classrooms, but in the public sphere? I mean, obviously, this podcast itself is an example of that, right? Trying to take intellectual critique, but put it out there in a more public way. I think that we all also are trying to do that in our writing, right? Hunter, you mentioned Brandy's wonderful piece in public books. I wrote a piece in the Los Angeles Review books. I know we're all working on things like that, but you know the importance of continuing intellectual work, but engaging with the public too, to try to get people to think about television during this time when it is so determinant of our world. But how do we get control over a medium that to some degree is defined by its uncontrollability? On the other hand, you know, uncontrollability as a sort of television is always a kind of excessive text, promiscuous text. On the other hand, you know, part of the problem with television is it's so over-controlled in terms of industrial ownership and who actually gets to make decisions. So it's a, a, a funny medium of both like totally out of control always and way over-controlled in, in other ways that are all so reflective of power dynamics in neoliberal capitalism. 
Yeah. So, I mean, how, how do we sort of remake our teaching of TV and our thinking of TV and also thinking about how TV also has to be sort of remade, right? Uh, so I, I want to give a shout out to all of our listeners who, you know, are in the, in the industry, who are, you know, thinking about these issues in terms of production practices. And, and obviously we, we are scholars. So, you know, thinking about the way in which the production practices have to be sort of changed, um, and also how that affects how we end up teaching. Uh, so I just read uh, a piece by Mark Harris in Vulture called Hollywood's New Pandemic Protocols. Uh, and so it's been really fascinating to see on the one hand how production practices will change and what that will mean for storytelling, right? And then that comes down the line for us in terms of how we teach television narrative, right? Like how is narrative going to look in a year if we sort of lose a 22 episode season program or the figure of the extra, right? These scenes with large crowds, right? Maybe untenable. Um, and so there are all of these different losses uh, and sort of reshapings of uh, the television industry itself as a, as a necessity in terms of the global public health crisis that I think will ultimately shift a little bit how we end up teaching various kinds of concepts and themes around form and content of television. Yeah. You know, when I teach my television studies courses, I always have some students who are interested in television and video production, other students who are interested in television and video criticism and theory. And I think it's really important to think about remaking television, as you're saying, and how it's going to be remade in terms of, as you're saying, production and industry, but also I would say in terms of viewing how can we remake television even through our own viewing hopefully critically informed viewing and and talking with each other but it is i think between different modes that are emerging of production different modes are emerging of user made creative i mean these days everybody in a sense is making television with their you know, with cell phone videos with with video conferencing even i mean we're living in a world where we're all accessing the world through screens so we're all sort of making television and again thinking through it i would argue that we that we think through it and thinking about how we can do that differently to really open up and give space for more perspectives, perspectives that aren't usually heard or respected. You know, I think that that's just so critical at this point in time. I, I really want to echo that and, and also maybe pressure it somewhat in the ways in which maybe we have lost the ability to talk about television in certain ways. Obviously, fan cultures have for many years now, and especially in the 21st century with digital developments, been, you know, now they're the primary locus for how one talks about sort of television, but on a much sort of narrow casted and very show specific fan culture specific level. I wonder if with the migration of corporate office culture from the, the office building to Zoom, if we lose the sort of casual moments in which people, that, that kind of proverbial water cooler moment in which people who wouldn't normally talk about such intimate things like as what they watched last night, like what did you do? And I think that might be something in which we might want to look at and see how we can foster and nurture new intimacies around public television cultures. Not like, you know, we walk up at a protest and say... <laughs> 
hey, you know, how's it going? What'd you watch on television last night? But to really think about maybe the dynamics of representation and reality as they as they unfold in our own sort of viewing habits and, and reflections. So Hunter and Brandy, I think that your comments about thinking about new forms of intimacies, new forms of socialities are really crucial. And it sort of brings me back to what I was saying at the beginning about how valuable I think it's been to get groups of people together to talk about these issues so that that itself was at least for me and hopefully for all of you listening and all of our participants, itself a sort of wonderful mode of sociality and intimacy to be able to talk together about television in these times. Yeah, it's been wonderful to chat with you all, uh, to organize this and really see it develop and come to fruition. So on behalf of my fellow co-organizers, Lynn Joyrich and Hunter Hargraves, I also want to thank our sponsors. So SCMS, ACA Media, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, as well as Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all their help with recording Uh, Todd Thompson for providing the music and editing expertise for this podcast series. Honestly, this could not have been made possible without you all. Uh, So we want to thank you. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Todd, for just helping us organize this over the past few weeks. And while this ends the run of episodes that Lynn and Brandy and myself had envisioned, um, we still do want to hear all of your thoughts about how you found the series, uh, what you enjoyed, what you might want to hear more uh, about in the future. Please continue to send in those questions and thoughts and love letters. Uh, <laughs> Please love letters. Through email at pandemic at gmail.com. On Twitter with the hashtag um, TalkTVInAPandemic. And depending on listener interest and funding, of course, we might be returning to the podcast airwaves uh, later on this fall with episodes on new topics and with new sort of conversations with, uh, with scholars. So please do voice that support. And if you have enjoyed this series, we highly encourage you to become regular listeners of ACA Media, uh, which is sponsored by the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies and SCMS. We really want to thank all of you who listened. And another uh, thanks to all 28 of our scholars who participated in these conversations. So on behalf of Lynn Joyrich and Brandy Monk-Payton, I'm Hunter Hargraves with Talking Television in a Pandemic. Thank you so much for listening and please stay healthy and wash your hands. And wear a mask. <laughs>